Good morning. All right. It's actually snowing today, which is nice. It's been, I feel like it hasn't snowed enough. Okay, I'm going to start with a pop quiz. Okay, here's the, here's the quiz. You ready? In the Nicene Creed, which is in our bulletin, what four attributes are said to be true about the church? You can look, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll receive a grade at the end of the service. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, so you want to say it louder? Yeah, yeah, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, right? Say that every week, by the way. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? So we confess that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Now let's think about that for a moment. Apostolic, sure. We could proclaim the faith handed down to us through the apostles, right? Catholic means according to the whole. And our recitation of the Nicene Creed is a testimony that our faith is measured by what all Christians confess for all time, right? So far, so good. But what about holy and one? Honestly, that's where I start to trip up. In what sense is the church holy, like visibly holy? Now, those of us who get paid to be theologians have some ways of answering that question that makes sense of Scripture. But right now, I'm more interested in what it feels like to say that. The church is holy, but it sure doesn't feel holy a lot of the time. We're increasingly aware of how often the church has done and continues to do harm. It's becoming more and more clear to those outside of the church that the picture of Jesus we paint does not align with the image of Christians they perceive. There's recently been an ad campaign called He Gets Us. I'm actually, anyway, it doesn't matter. To meet this very need. If Jesus is proclaimed to be gentle, kind, loving, just, and merciful, why are Christians perceived to be harsh, rude, unloving, unjust, and merciless? Now, this is also tied up with the oneness of the church. That's holiness, now oneness of the church. I'm not against denominations. I think they have a theological place. But denominational intramural fighting is ceaseless, right? Even more seriously, local churches fight and split and divide and break all the time. The very same problems with power dynamics, arrogance, pride, narcissism, hurt, clickishness, and so on that we see out there in the world can be found in churches. The call is always coming from inside the house, so it seems. So what are we doing when we confess the creed? Should we cross our fingers or say that we are one and holy except so-and-so? Right? And that's the temptation, of course. But it's not what we're called to. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, says St. Paul in Ephesians 4, 3 through 6. Since there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, <clears throat> one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's a whole lot of one talk, right? So how can we reconcile these two realities? The church is and must be one and holy. But the church is also fractured, petty, and very often ugly. Should we give up on it? 
Has God given up on it? And these are very real questions that we must face head on. Now, our text in 1 Corinthians this morning offers us some helpful indications as to how to take some steps forward. Now, I want us to snoop in on the Corinthian church this morning. Let's forget our context, our problems, our divisions for just a moment, and let's focus on somebody else's problems, all right? It's always easier to do that, isn't it? (laughs) What What we're going to find out is that the issues that the Corinthians faced are probably very similar to the issues we have faced and will face. So keep that in the back of your mind. But one very good way to learn Christian ethics is through example. How have other people dealt with the issues that we face? And what is virtuous about their response and what isn't? So let's look at the Corinthian church, but let us allow the mirror of Scripture to reflect on us. So what's going on in Corinth? What's going on in Corinth? What are we looking at? It's always a bit of tricky guesswork to try to figure out the background stuff in Scripture. But the best guess is we have that these folks met in a house church or house churches, all right? So they didn't have a building like this. And they were in a huge group because of that, max 30 to 50 people per house church. So picture a a group about that size, about the size, in fact, of our group here, when the children are here, probably, or slightly smaller. So you got that in your head? That's the group we're thinking of. Now, these folks were not lifelong Christians. Most of them were Gentile converts, getting their bearings in church life. And they were also sports fans. Let me explain what I mean. In Corinth, they hosted something called the Isthmian Games, which was kind of like a smaller Olympics. So hold that in your mind for a minute, all right? 50 sports fans. This was also a very diverse group of people comprised of haves and have-nots, folks with some money and folks with no money. For a group of this composition, therefore, it will be very hard under average circumstances to get close to one another, right? The haves would distance themselves from the have-nots. The Bears fans and the Packers fans would fight, right? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Mother Amanda is making up for all of you not laughing at that joke, all right? But these weren't average circumstances in Corinth. They were a church in crisis. Chloe's people, we learn in verse 11, have reported to Paul that there are quarrels in the church. Now think here of rivalry, strife, or discord. People biting at each other over certain issues, and Paul talks about those issues. Since we're building up a mental picture, though, don't think here that these quarrels are necessarily visible, like a church-style cafeteria food fight, all right? That's not what's going on. That's not how people usually quarrel. Such obvious antipathy would actually make things a lot easier, wouldn't it? Very often in churches, we fight cold wars. Everybody knows who's mad at everybody else, but things, these things manifest indirectly, right? Certain people are excluded, cliques are formed, they meet in secret and make plans, representatives are identified, and they speak with loud voices. In his book, uh, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Chuck DeGroat gives the example of Beth, it's not her real name, a woman who served as an elder at her large church, right? Through her time as an elder, she made her way into the inner circle of leaders through ingratiation, weaving a narrative that without her, the church would fall apart, especially because the senior pastor was, quote, inept and incapable of growing the church, which such pressures later led him to resign. She continued to use her charm and her influence to bring in another pastor of her choice. 
De Groot concludes of cases like this, he says, narcissism plays itself out among ordinary people in ordinary congregations like Corinth. Most people, he doesn't say like Corinth, I said that. Most people were blind to the realities of the situation, but there were clear victims, obvious manipulation, and profound pain. So when we read that there were quarrels in Corinth, don't think fisticuffs. Think of something much more subtle. But Paul, perceiving this, gives us a very clear statement of what he wants to happen, what he calls his appeal. It comes in verse 10, a passage that Richard Hayes calls the fundamental theme of the letter, shaping everything that follows from it. Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. It's really important. It's important that he's appealing in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our, right? First person plural. And we'll come back to us to that in just a moment. He's calling them, though, to three things, all right? Number one, agree with one another in what you say. Number two, that there be no divisions among you. And number three, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Paul wants them to be of one voice in what they say, especially what they say about the church and about the Christ who has brought them into being. He wants there to be no divisions among them. In Christ, they are one. And through their quarrels, they are making artificial incisions into the body of Christ. What causes fights and quarrels among you, asks the book of James. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. That's James 4, 1 and 2. Know what James takes aim at, our desires, often for domination and power that lie hidden within our hearts, showing up in deceitful ways. So finally, Paul wants them to be perfectly united. Think here of the word mended or restored or reconciled. Paul is holding that these 50 or so people in his mind, and he sees all kinds of lines that are dividing them, right? And he longs for and appeals for them to be restored. So that's what he wants. So what stands in the way of that happening? What stands in the way of his appeal? What prevents these quarrels from being resolved? The answer is in verse 12. One of you says, I belong to Paul. Another says, I belong to Apollos. Another, I belong to Cephas. Still another, I belong to Christ. Or literally, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Now remember, these were sports fans. I told you that was going to be important. And they're treating their religious allegiances like they treat their sports teams. As I hope you all know, last month, the world's most important sporting event was held. No, last month, not next month. You all know what I'm talking about? The World Cup. Yeah? So this would be like me coming up here and saying, all right, all of you have to support Brazil or you're bad Christians. Now, that's technically true, but I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that in, while I'm preaching. Oh, geez. I, I promise I write my sermons down and then I just don't. Yeah. All right. Okay. It's, so it would be ridiculous, right, to apply the mentality some of us take to sports to our faith. But that's precisely what happens so often. We do it with politics, too. I belong to Paul. That's the Paul team. 
I belong to Apollos. That's the Apollos team. Each team goes on Amazon and buys the books their leaders write, goes to see them at conferences and all the rest of it, right? And all those who like Paul don't like those who like Apollos, right? And you can bet that it would be very easy for those teachers to take that influence that they are gathering and use it to hold sway over the people, right? And it would be much easier to retain that influence if Paul started saying that Apollos was rotten all the way down, or Apollos said that Paul's theology was not really biblical or stuff like that. Thankfully, those two didn't say that, but the contemporary church in the United States sure does, right? There's something important to notice about these dynamics, something crucial about what's going on behind the scenes, namely that belonging is very important to us. Belonging is very important to us. I belong to Paul is less about Paul and more about the fundamental human need to feel validated, safe, and like one belongs. So we can't miss that. More than that, the church should be a space of belonging, a space of safety, compassion, gentleness, and mercy. So this good desire for belonging becomes twisted into division when quarrels arise. Both teams want to feel like they belong and are validated, but they are doing so at the expense of the other. They are doing so at the expense of love of neighbor, perhaps even love of enemy. We don't, that's not an option, by the way, Jesus said that. As it turns out, these dynamics are not new. So St. Augustine, there you are, Joel, preaching on Psalm 73, asks this of his congregation. Every sermon, I will use Augustine, and nobody can stop me. Actually, I'm Mother Amanda kid. <laughs> Here's what he says when he's preaching on Psalm 73. He says, if you were enamored of a charioteer, right, and they held races and stuff like that, would you not pester other people to become your fellow fans? A charioteer's fan talks about his hero wherever he goes, trying to persuade others to share his passion. There's that sports mentality, right? Instead of a charioteer, pick your favorite sport, and you can see the dynamics at play. We're all intuitive evangelists for the things we love, right? Crucially, notes Augustine, there's one sense in which our love for God is unlike our love for a charioteer, namely, that there is room for God, room for us in God, room for all of us in God. So he goes on to say this, do not begrudge God to anyone. Grab someone else, as many people as you can, everyone you can get hold of. There is room for all of them in God. There is room for all of them in God. You cannot set any limits to him. Each of you individually will possess the whole of him. And all of you together will possess him whole and entire. So that's Augustine. If I love God, it doesn't mean that there is less God for you to love, right? In fact, my love for God is enhanced by your love for God because recognizing common objects of love forges communities together. Loving God together weaves our hearts into one. Because God is very big, big enough for all of us. And God cannot be broken up or divided. All right, that's divine simplicity for those taking notes at home. All right, and this is precisely Paul's response to what gets in the way of his appeal. 
Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The obvious answer here is, of course not. But know why he asks this. The people we idolize in churches when we group against one another cannot bear the weight that only God is meant to bear. To make any human being the center of your religious identity, the identifying feature of your experience of the Christian faith, is to expect someone who is divisible, breakable, and fallible to be something only God can be. And this is important for sacramental reasons. In verses 13 through 17, Paul discusses how baptism renders these divisions wreaking havoc in the Corinthian church impossible. You are baptized into Christ, he says, not into anyone else. And Christ can't be divided. Baptism is not a cutting up of Christ where everybody gets a chunk of Jesus. Right? We are united to Christ in baptism. Christ is not separated and divvied out so that one group can say, we have more of Jesus than you. If Jesus is not divided, and if Jesus secures the unity of the church, then we don't belong to Paul or Apollos. And baptism is a visible and tangible testimony to that. Now, some of you don't remember your baptism because you were quite young. The same points, however, regarding unity hold for the sacrament that we observe every week, the Eucharist. Later on in the same letter, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, which for them was much more like a meal than what we do here. Imagine, imagine a bunch of people angry at each other having a meal. It's like the worst Thanksgiving ever, right? <laughs> and it really would be like people getting drunk and all that, right? Yeah, so he, he says in chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, and in our church we literally have one loaf for a reason. We, who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Just like baptism, the Eucharist is not a breaking up of Jesus, so that everyone can have, so someone can have more Jesus than somebody else. I got a bigger piece of bread, right? That's literally, it is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. Notice the difference in tone. Instead of carving up Jesus and clutching at different parts of Jesus, like some kind of religiously confused Black Friday sale, Paul speaks of the Eucharist as many weak, broken, and vulnerable people coming to Jesus with room to spare. Baptism and the Eucharist are regular testimonies to that reality. So notice the disjuncts that Paul is calling our attention to. On the one hand, you have these divisions within the church collecting themselves into groups and biting at one another, right? On the other hand, you have Jesus, the Jesus who beckons us all to come to him every time we walk down the aisle of this church to participate in his body and blood. And just like the body of Christ cannot be divided, the body of Christ as the church cannot be divided. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how the church is a body, a body whose head is Christ. If if the, the church is a body, the Corinthian church and any other church that's quarreling is like a body with a debilitating autoimmune disease hurting itself. Christ is the solution here. And every time we take the Lord's Supper and hear the body of Christ broken, 
not divided. For you, the the blood of Christ shed for you, we are inwardly transformed by that participation. And slowly, perhaps very slowly, division is overcome. Right? Perhaps very, very, very slowly. So, it's okay. God is patient. Finally, then, so all of that, if that's true, how does Jesus forge unity in the church through his body and blood in like practical ways? How do we properly appreciate both the kinds of things that hurt us while validating the good and earnest desires for belonging behind the division, while also pursuing the unity and holiness guaranteed for us in Jesus Christ? Now, this is a really complicated question, and it probably doesn't have just one answer. That's because every answer will have to take into account the context in which the division and hurt occur and how Jesus Christ is to speak into that context. What what we can do is learn from Paul what he did with the Corinthians and follow his example. So what did Paul do? Paul sees his goal as a leader in the church not to hoard power. That's important. Or to get an impressive following that he can control and use to squash his opponents. Or to manipulate the people beneath him who are saying they belong to him. That's not what Paul was doing. He pushed aside, he says, eloquent wisdom the tool of his day to gain a following. If you wanted to be an influencer in Paul's day, you needed eloquent wisdom. It's like him saying, I don't want a ton of like Instagram followers. People, do people say, Instagram's weird. He was concerned instead that the cross, he was concerned that the cross of Christ not be emptied of its power in verse 17. That was his main concern. The cross of Christ not be emptied of its power. What kind of power is this? And how does it heal wounds? Later in verses 28 and 29, Paul makes it clear. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Did you catch that? Let me read that one more time because it's super important. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the people, the things people turn their noses up at, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. In a church that was full of haves and have-nots, that was aligning itself, aligning against itself and vying for power against the other group, Paul says, the cross of Christ loves the despised. That person you hate, Jesus loves. For those united to Christ, there is no boasting. No, I belong to so-and-so. There is only a commonly shared, lowly identity and a common clinging to Christ together. Here's how Richard Hayes puts it. Paul repeatedly argues that the gospel overturns the world's notion of power and social standing. As the body of Christ, they are linked together, rich and poor, slave and free, in a network of mutual love and concern. The power of the gospel, then, is this. It invites all to come on the basis of our powerlessness, our guilt, our weakness, our burden. But the moment that we attempt to add something to this, I've got Jesus and Paul, I've got Jesus and Apollos, then the power of the gospel then starts to push against you. 
right? It's a power that cuts both ways. It admits the powerless but pushes against the powerful. Think again about the Eucharist. The Eucharist is food, and food is for the hungry. Later in chapter 11, Paul's going to rebuke the Corinthians again for their divisions, except this time it's for those who divide and use their divided power to eat up all of the Eucharist selfishly, leaving those who have nothing to be humiliated. It's like if I went up and grabbed the whole loaf and ran away or something, right? Doesn't really work. There were, it was a meal, right? The hunger these greedy people display is not a hunger for Christ, is the key here. The hunger they display is not a hunger for Christ, but a hunger for power, control, and domination. But the Eucharist as food reminds us that we are meant to be hungry, but not for a hunger that leads to greed, but a hunger that recognizes our dependence on Christ. It is a hunger that says, come and eat with me. There's more than enough for all of us. Jesus is big enough. So in the end, the bigness of Jesus is what counters the smallness of division. He offers us that belonging that we long for. As one of my mentors likes to say, she says, in the kingdom of God, it's loaves and fishes everywhere. They don't run out and there's extra, right? So in the kingdom of God, it's loaves and fishes anywhere, everywhere. Amen. So in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.